Well, if you can open your Bibles to uh, James, James chapter 2. And let me uh, read those verses for you. James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 26. Uh, verses 14 through 26. James says, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that Faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. About eight years ago, I proposed to, to my wife, to Tina, then my fiancé, uh, I proposed to her, and, and when I proposed to her, I, I, I purchased a diamond ring, to go along with that life-changing will-you question. I, I had never purchased anything so expensive in my life. When I got the ring, I, I, I naturally I hid it in my room, and every few days I would, I would check my uh, hiding spot to see if it was still there. I had two roommates who were believers, and of course I trusted them, but you never know. And, and I would even sometimes, I would open the little box afraid that when I proposed, the box would be empty. Well, the day finally came, and it went as planned, and and uh, she said yes, and uh, obviously, and we, but but it didn't it didn't fit right, so we needed to get the, the the ring resized. So I took it to the jeweler, who took a few days to to uh, refit it, and during the wait, I thought to myself, how easy would it be for a, a jeweler with criminal intentions to to replace the real diamond for a fake one? I, I would never know. How would I be able to tell the difference? And now in the grand scheme of things, even if that did happen, it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have been that much of a loss. I assume the ring that my wife has today is the same ring I first purchased. There are a lot of things in life worse than my wife wearing a, a counterfeit uh, a diamond ring. It's the, it's the principle behind it that bothers that would bother me, right? When something of value is replaced with something without value, unbeknownst to the one who paid the price for what was stolen, you can't help but feel like a serious crime has been committed against you. And so in today's passage, we're going to consider something more costly than diamond rings being counterfeited, not by thieves or criminals, but by people who have associated themselves by 
with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to consider two kinds of faith, a, a counterfeit faith that is useless and a genuine faith, a 24-karat faith that is infinitely more valuable than silver and gold. The thesis of James, as you know, is a wholehearted Christianity. When, some, when somebody decides to follow Christ, they are required to devote all of their lives to him. This is the Bible's greatest commandment, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it's this greatest commandment that is, the, that is really the thesis of, of James's letter. So far, through our study, James has told us that God will not answer the prayers of an inconsistent, half-hearted believer, whether the trial is a, tri trial, is a, a trial of poverty or, or wealth, regardless of what the trial is. You will not persevere under the trial. You will not mature if you vacillate in your knowledge of God's character. If you blame God for your, your sinful responses in the trial instead, instead of trusting in his perfect goodness, if you're constantly losing your temper in a trial, if you just listen to God's word instead of being a doer of the, doer of the word, if you're treating other believers with, with personal favoritism and partiality, if you're discriminating, discriminating against the poor, all of these manifestations of action and, and behavior display a divided heart. And so in today's passage, James offers the possibility that your divided heart could be, not necessarily, but it could be not simply the result of the sinfulness of our flesh, rather James raises the prospect that a divided heart for Christ could be the symptom of a deeper issue, and that issue is this. Your faith just not might, might not be real. You could be wearing a fake diamond ring. James ended last Sunday's passage with a warning. Those of us who put fellow believers in worldly categories of identity will be judged by the law of freedom. In the supreme law he has given us, the, the body among ourselves is to, to love each other, to love your neighbor as yourself. Said in a different way, we are to love each other the way Christ loved us. And if, we've, and if we have failed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ all of our lives, if we have shown no mercy for their suffering and needs, if this has been an unbroken pattern, on the day of judgment, that failure to show mercy will prove beyond doubt that we have never received mercy for ourselves. But if we have shown this mercy, it will demonstrate we have indeed received the mercy of the gospel. And it will be that mercy paid for by the sacrifice of Christ that will triumph over judgment our sins deserve according to God's perfect law. And you think, judgment? No, I thought I was saved by faith alone, and, and I don't need to worry about judgment. I, I, I said a prayer. I was baptized. I walked down an aisle. I signed a card. And so James is going to establish in the, in the following verses about what kind of faith provides security in that final judgment. There is nothing more important, friends, than making sure your faith is a 24-karat faith. And so this morning we're going to consider three qualities of a 24-karat faith. Uh, quality number one, a 24-karat faith is always accompanied by the royal law of love, verses 14 through 17. One problem in the church that we don't really, we're not really aware of is when a professing believer 
evidence. There's no genuine, there's no fruit, there's no works. It doesn't seem like their life has changed in any way. And in these past six years, uh, I admit this as a personal failure. I, I've never really, I've, I've conducted membership interviews. I've, I've heard your understanding of the gospel, and you have explained it clearly. You, you told me you believe it. And then over the years, I've seen uh, people come and go. I've seen members who have displayed no fruit, no works. And I've, I've never really said anything. Even in my own heart, I, 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 didn't, I didn't seriously doubt your salvation because I, I heard it. You told me. You had the clearest gospel presentation that I've ever heard. I mean, you said you believed it. You, you come from a good church in the past. Here in James 14, James says, is telling me, and, and, and he's telling anybody here who's made these similar non-judgments about other people's profession of faith, James tells us we, we might have been mistaken. That maybe that's just the wrong approach. James says that if there is, there, there is no visible work following a profession of faith, there is a possibility that a person's faith is a, is a fake diamond ring. He says in verse 14, What use is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? We assume that James is addressing a widespread problem in the churches he's writing to. There seems to be a misunderstanding about the nature of genuine faith. Apparently, many Christians in the early church that James is addressing, they think that religious feelings about Jesus is enough, or they seem to think that an intellectual acceptance of doctrinal standards were sufficient. And so he states right off, off the bat that through these rhetorical questions that this kind of faith is, is just useless. There's no point in having them. They, they do you no good. That if your faith isn't bearing fruit, you're, you're just wasting your time here. You're wasting time coming to church on Sunday morning. You would be better off taking painting lessons or running around the block a few times. And James would say, why do, you, why do you keep playing this game with God by holding on to a counterfeit faith? But deep inside, I think the answer for, for, for many is because I need to get to heaven. I need to get to heaven, so I need to be here. So I come. And so James, already anticipating that, that answer deep down in your heart, he, he asks again in verse 14, well, can that faith save you? Can that faith save him? And the saving here refers to, to final salvation, eschatological salvation. James says, can, can that, that kind of faith, can, can it get anybody to heaven? What use is that? doesn't serve you here, doesn't serve anybody around you very well, doesn't get you to heaven, what's the point of it? These verses here this morning are a, a clear call to examine the genuineness of our faith. Is the diamond of your faith a real diamond? And what we are to examine and, and, and what we are to inspect is not a profession of faith that you made in the past, you never want to find assurance that your faith is genuine from some emotional experience, experience you had years ago or, or a prayer that you prayed or, or, you, or you went to the sinner's prayer or a card that you signed. You see, prayers don't necessarily save anybody. 
There are people who pray to God in Scripture who are saved. There are people who pray to God in Scripture who are not saved. Spiritual experience, experiences don't save you. Only faith does. Only genuine faith connects us to Christ. But the problem is, faith can be easily counterfeited. So James wants us to make sure our faith is authentic. And so he calls us here this morning to, to really examine our lives, to look in the mirror, to, 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 to consider, to consider the, the direction of, of where we're going. What kind of Christian are you today? What kind of spiritual life have you been living in the past year or two or past three years? Does your faith display some degree of a consistent manifestation of good works? And the, wor and the works that he, that he refers to in verse 14, uh, it, it means uh, actions done in obedience to God. 24 karat faith produces actions and deeds that are motivated by obedience to God. And the work of faith that James highlights in verses 15 and 16, above all else, is the work of love. It's the work of love. The 24-karat faith always produces biblical love, genuine love. Our Lord Jesus is the King of love. The hymn writer famously wrote, The King of love, my shepherd is. And those who say they have faith in this king of love will love the way he loves. Several times in the scripture, we see that when faith is mentioned, it is accompanied by, accompanied by two other attributes. Faith, hope, and what? Love. 1 Corinthians 13, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. True faith is always accompanied by true love. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Paul and James, listen to me, they do not disagree about faith. There is no contradiction between Paul and James, as I will explain later. And, 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 and the theme of Galatians is all about justification by faith alone. But even in Galatians, Paul says the kind of faith that secures justification is expressed through love. Saving, justifying faith proves its genuine character by works of love. Later in Galatians, Paul lists love is the first fruit of the Spirit because love is the fountain from which all the other fruits of the Spirit, like joy and peace and self-control and the rest flow out from. And so the example James uses in verses 15 and 16 it continues the theme from the first half of chapter 2 that we looked at last Sunday when James addressed the sin of personal favoritism. The believers James is writing to, or they are, they are treating the rich like kings and they are treating the poor in Christ like trash. When the rich came to church, they were given the best seats. When the poor came, they were told to sit on the floor near the dirty feet of the rest of the congregation. The church in James's time was openly and publicly sinning. They were wantonly indulging in their sin and they were justifying their partiality by a misunderstanding of the law. They, when they saw the law, they, they kind of uh, approached it like, a, like, you, like, you, like you approached a math test. 
or a, or a, a geography test in high school where, you know, well, I got, I got 24 out of 25 right. That gives me a 97%. I, I still get an A. And, and so James says in verse 10, you got it all wrong. You don't see the law correctly. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of law. The law isn't a math test. The law of Christ is an indivisible whole. So if you break one of those laws, you don't get an A, you don't get a 90%, 97%, you get an F. You become guilty of all the law. And so when you treat the poor, when you sin with the sin of partiality and personal favoritism, that's not a speeding ticket in God's eyes. That is not a traffic violation. No, the sin of partiality is more like first-degree murder. The all of the law of Christ in the New Testament concerning our duty to each other, it is fulfilled by the command to love your neighbor as yourself. If you were poor, would you like to be treated like trash? If you lost your job, things got hard, would you want the congregation to, 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 to treat you like a, a subhuman being? No, love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love God with all your heart is the greatest commandment, and the command to love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. This is not a small deal. You're getting an F. And so in the first half of chapter 2, the example that James gave of the church's failure to love was their partiality against the poor. And now in verses 15 and 16, the example continues. The poor would get the worst seats at the beginning of the church service. And now as they are leaving without clothing, with bare minimum clothing and rags, they're clearly in need. They're clearly hungry. They need food for the, next, for the night or the next day. These same believers are telling their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 16, go in peace. Shalom, that was the common expression. Peace be with you. God bless you. God fill you with all blessing. Be warmed and be filled. And, that, and, and guess what? what? What also do they do? You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What is the point of that? There is no love in verses 15 and 16 because a love that is merely verbal is not love at all. A love that is a mere sentiment and feeling is not, is not true love. If your love for the church does nothing tangibly for anybody, it's not biblical love. I read one writer talk about the, the phenomena of how, we, of how we, we watch movies and we cry and we're, 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 so, we're so sad for the character and we, we weep at the end and we show all this compassion. And then, but when we see a real need of the church, we're, we're, we're heartless, we're indifferent, we don't care. We care more about movie characters than real people. And James says, no, if, if that's your kind of faith, I don't know what to tell you about your ring. See, 24-carat faith always produces love that manifests itself in tangible ways. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. Listen to 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Turn, turn to your Bibles to 1 John uh, 3, 16 through 18. Uh, I want, I, want to, I want you to read this for yourselves. The Apostle John says, By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, when it comes to love, actions speak louder than words. When it comes to faith, brothers and sisters, actions speak louder than words. The example of verses 15 and 16 encapsulates in one picture all of the major attributes of biblical love that genuine faith produces. If, if we can love our poor brothers and sisters in Christ, well, that love will be of, of a particular character that transcends every situation. What kind of love does 24 karat faith produce when your brother and sister in Christ are in need? Well, it's obvious here in 1 John that saving faith produces sacrificial love. 1 John 3.16 says again, but by this we have known love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How much do I need to give a fellow Satan need if necessary, your own life. And we ought to lay down our, our lives for the brothers. That's what it says. Because that's what Jesus gave to love you. So if that's the extent, what, what falls in between that? Well, let's start with the basics. The ABCs of love that a true faith produces. Saving faith produces a love that sacrifices time for the body of Christ. If the extent of love that is required of you is your own life, your own life if necessary, then surely, brothers and sisters, surely you can give 15 minutes of your time to others on Sunday morning. I mean, if you can't even sacrifice that in order to have a meaningful conversation, then how will you ever know if somebody is in need if you never talk to the person? Trust me, we have a lot of needs here. We have a lot of hurting people here. They need you. We need you. You can only love somebody with your actions. You actually know. And knowing somebody always requires a sacrifice of time. You have to give your time. Number two, saving faith produces a love that sacrifices financial resources for the sake of the church. These poor people who, who have no clothing, rags, and their, their food, they need you to take out your wallet and help them with real money that you have. That's why we give to the church. We, you give to the church, and we have members and saints and needs. We help them with your giving. And the amount of faith that you give to your church reveals the kind of faith you have. And it's the, it's the purest kind of worship. I remember my former TMS uh, president, Dick Mayhew, he would always say, you know, that, that, that giving is the purest kind of worship because, because nobody else but God knows what you're giving. It's just you and God. Meager giving shows a meager faith. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And this verse is given within the context of our obligation to sacrificially give to the financially to the church. And so 
Paul says here, when you were a spiritual beggar, Christ became poor so that you could gain spiritual riches. You became rich in Christ, and now that spiritual wealth should compel you to give of your financial resources to the church that proves just how much you have been given in Christ. One commentator, Jason Meyer, writes about 2 Corinthians 8 9. The opportunity to give, uh, the opportunity to give offers believers the chance to test whether or not they have received what Christ gave in the gospel. The genuineness of Christ's love is clear on the cross. The genuineness of a believer's love should become clear in the collection. Saving faith produces a love that sacrifices time, produces a love that sacrifices material resources. Number three, saving faith produces a love that has crucified a believer's lust for the riches of the world. James's readers, they have divided hearts. They, th they thought they could be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. And, and isn't that always the battle, isn't it? All that God wants from you, the world wants too. God wants your time and the world wants your time. God wants you to spend your money for the kingdom and the, and the world wants you to spend it on its pleasures. God wants you to sacrifice your resources for those in need. The world wants you to maximize all your resources for, for your personal comfort. The Lord wants you to serve him and advance the prerogatives of the church. The world wants you to serve its mission and prerogatives of a fallen world system. The world wants you to die to yourself and live for others. The world wants you to die to others and live for yourself. And so when you give sacrificially, when you're Faith produces that. It proves your relationship to Christ and it shows how you have been crucified to the world. What you give to God and his people indeed reveals the quality of your faith. Don't fool yourself because you know how to speak Christianese. You know how to speak the Christian lingo and fit in. You know how to smile and, and, and do the right thing. James starts with the question, what use is that kind of faith? And then he finishes verse 16 with the same question. What use is this? What, what use is these are these kind kinds of words? What kind of what use is this faith? On two levels, it doesn't put any it doesn't put food in anyone's stomach, and it won't get you into heaven. <laughs> it is completely useless. And then he goes one step further in verse seventeen. He says, "A faith that has no works is, is dead." There's no fruit on the tree of faith. That the tree is dead. The, 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 the fruit doesn't cause the tree to live. The presence of fruit is the evidence of whether or not the tree is alive. And so we move from characteristic number one, a 24-carat faith is always accompanied by, by love. And number two, a 24-carat faith requires more than sound doctrine and theological orthodoxy, verses 18 and 19. Years ago, there was a prominent pastor from Portland who was a regular speaker at my church and my seminary. I was required to read one of his books that he authored on spirit-anointed preaching. He was invited to speak at the Shepherd Conference one year. He gave a powerful sermon. The Shepherd's Conference, by the way, is a pastor's conference that I attend uh, every year where 
all these pastors and church leaders gathered together to be refreshed by God's word and fellowship. And, and if you know anything about my background, to be able to, to, to be a regular speaker at my church and seminary, to be able to speak at this conference, every speaker's, uh, every, their every doctrinal I needs to be dotted, their every doctrinal T needs to be crossed, and this man had all that. His theology on paper was impeccable. His expository preaching was, was top-notch. He was a pastor of a big, a, a Bible-believing, faithful church. And then one day, a grieving husband wrote an email to this pastor's elders saying that this pastor was having an affair with his wife. And two of the elders, they went to his house immediately to confront him about the allegation, and the pastor confessed that it was true. And later he confessed this. It wasn't his first affair. And he asked the elders, could you keep it quiet? Could you keep it on the down low? And the elders said, no, we can't keep this quiet. He wanted to move on. He wanted to find another church. He was eventually disciplined out of the church. He showed no repentance and to this day, this pastor continues to speak at churches and conferences around the country. Churches who know about his past, who don't care about his repentance, but have never taken, taken these verses in James very seriously. James introduces a an imaginary objector in verse 18. And this imaginary inject, uh, 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 this imaginary objector, uh, we call him an interlocutor. The interlocutor says in verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Uh, some people have faith, a, a, a mere question of faith. Some people have a faith that produces works. It's all good, potato, patata. Mere faith is good enough, and if, if faith comes with, with fruit, then even better. As long as you, you said a prayer in the past, as long as you, you've been baptized, as long as there's a, there's a profession, that's fine. If there's fruit to that profession, that's, that's just a bonus. See, that's the sentiment. You have faith, and I have works. And then James interjects, and he says, no, no, no. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This kind of theology always rears its ugly head through from time to time. In the, the 1980s and 90s, there was a group of professors from Dallas Theological Seminary, and they argued for what they called a, a no-lordship salvation. And they, they contended that a mere profession of faith was sufficient for heaven's entry. Uh, yes, a, a faith that produced fruit was even better, but it was, it was optional. And so John MacArthur, that's when he kind of came on the scene. He, that's when he wrote his most famous book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And it was his re response to this aberrant theology coming out of a conservative Bible-believing seminary. And he argued in the book that the Bible taught and church history affirmed for 2,000 years that Jesus, he can't be merely your savior. No, true salvation means that Jesus has to become your Lord. He has, he has to become your master and your king. That true love for Jesus always translates into genuine obedience to Christ. And in John's book, it echoes the sentiment of, of verse 18. 
After the interlocutor objects to James's theology, James responds with, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. John's argument in the gospel, in the gospel according to Jesus was, you, you show me your faith without the works, and from Scripture, I will show you that my faith by my works is the only kind of faith that the Bible recognizes. It's not faith or works. The two are always together. And so James says in the same way, let me argue, the, the, let me argue from Scripture, uh, from the Old Testament, that my faith by my works is the only one that God approves of. And he says that kind of faith does nothing, that kind of faith that just simply is on paper, that kind of faith that simply preaches great expository sermons but cheats on his wife on a regular basis, that kind of faith is demonic. Verse 19, you believe that God is one? This was a, a, a common Jewish confession of orthodoxy from Deuteronomy 6.4. It was the standard for a faithful Jew in a world of polytheism. There's there's only one God, and every Jewish Christian would pride themselves in this doctrinal affirmation. And James sarcastically, sarcastically says, oh, you believe that God is one? You do well, because you know what? The, de the demons also believe that. The demons also know that, that, that there's only one God. They also know that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of the universe. The, the, the demons' theology is better than yours. They know the Bible better than you. Every Sunday they go to church, they hear sermons. They're sitting in the back row. They know everything the pastor said. They know. They hear the scripture. They pay more attention. Their theology is better than you. And their, and their faith is, is even more responsive to God's word than yours. Look at what it says. They believe and they shudder. When they hear about hell, they actually get scared. It scares them to death. But you don't even bat an eye. You, 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 you don't even care. You walk out that door indifferent. The demons in the corner, they're shivering. They're afraid. You walk out that door and you, you continue your life as sin as if nothing happened. Your faith is worse than a demon's faith, Paul uh, James says to the one whose faith shows no works. Now we move to the, the, last, the last characteristic of a 24-carat faith in verses 20 through to 26. A 24-carat faith, point number three, is required from every single believer, from Augustine to Angela, from John Calvin to Carol, verses 23, 20 through 26. In other words, nobody gets a pass from having to produce good works. You can be the greatest preacher in the world. You can have your own study Bible. You have to show that your faith is genuine by how you love your wife, and how you love your kids, and how you love your neighbors. If the church thinks you're the godliest man in the world, but if your neighbors think you're a demon, you know what? That faith won't work. You may think you have no gifts or talents. You may be the poorest, most pathetic Christian in the world, but God still requires works of faith for even you. 
The truth, that true saving faith always bears spiritual fruit is a universal truth for every believer in every church in the world for all time since the days of the patriarchs in Genesis. In verses 14 and 16, James says, James said a faith without works is useless. He said in verse 17, a faith without works is dead by itself. He said in verse 19, a faith without works, even with a seminary degree, is demonic. And now in verse 21, John uh, James begins this last section of our passage by calling those who will not examine their faith a foolish fellow. You're a fool if you refuse to take a hard look at your faith, especially when you're just kind of cruising through the Christian life. If that's, if that's you, if you're just kind of going by, drifting like the wind, you're being foolish, you're being stubborn, you're being ignorant and hard-hearted. And this is not just an intellectual failure, this is a, this is a moral failure. So James cites two real-life examples from Old Testament history to show that a fruit-bearing faith has always been the standard. And the first person he uses as an exemplar of faith is Abraham, verses 21 through 24. Verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Abraham was the father of faith for Israel. He was Israel's hero of the faith. If you want to prove a doctrine about faith, Abraham is the first guy you go to. And so Paul went to him when he talked about faith, and James goes to him as he talks about faith. And if you know how Genesis works, if you've been coming to Friday, you know we have a Bible study on Friday at 7.30, you can come to that. If you know how Genesis works, you know that from Genesis 12 through 15, Moses is establishing for Israel their core national values. Israel must be known by particular national values. America's national value is liberty and freedom. One of a, you can get a, a license plate. I kind of want to buy it. There's that, that orange Virginia license plate with a little snake, and it says, don't treat on me. That's, a, that's a, America's value, freedom, liberty. But for Israel, the first and most important national value was established in Genesis 12 through 2020. 12 through 22, and that value was faith in Yahweh. That was to be their most important national value. When the rest of the nations looked at Israel, they were to think they believe they have faith in Yahweh. And so Abraham is the exemplar of that. He's exemplifying that from Genesis 12 to 22, from Genesis 12 when he's called to, a, to the, a, the promised land and he believes in God's word, to Genesis 22 when his faith reaches its fullness as he willingly gives up his son to be sacrificed. So from Genesis 12 to 22, for 10 chapters, Moses records the growth of Abraham's faith it starts really small, it fails a lot, it's rocky, but it eventually grows up. And in Genesis 22, a faith makes its uh, mark, it, it matures, it reaches the mountaintop. And so, in verses 21 and 22, this is what James references. When he gave up, he was willing to give up his son. And so he says, remember Genesis 22 at the end of the story of Abraham's faith? You remember verse 21, was not Abraham our, 
our father justified by works when he offered up his, his Isaac, his son, on the altar. And if you, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you, you realize that that, that, that that verse kind of uh, irks you a little bit. It, it's kind of strange because it seems like it is contradicting the, the theme of the Re- Reformation. It, it seems like it's contradicting Paul when he said we are justified by faith alone. So is this a contradiction? Listen to Galatians 2.16. Look at what Paul says. Uh, Listen to what Paul says. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we know this this is not a contradiction? How do we explain this where you have two parts, two authors of the same New Testament working together in harmony? Well, first way we know that it's not a contradiction is because God wrote this book and he cannot contradict himself. He is perfect. And you can't judge his word that way. His word judges you. You you can't stand above his word and say there's a mistake. No, you're, you're the mistake. You have contradictions, not him. And so we always begin our hermeneutic with a hermeneutic of total surrender to God's word. His word is perfect, it's inerrant, and that is a basic a priori axiom number one. You can't question God's word. He, his, word his word always questions us. Secondly, it is clear from the context of Paul's writings that, and the context of James's writings that they're both dealing with two different problems. Someone once said that James and Paul, they are not opponents facing each other with swords drawn. They are standing with their backs to each other, each drawing swords as they face a different opponent, end quote. Uh, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works. James pleads for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Paul was fighting against a tradition that promoted a false work salvation. James was fighting against a cheap faith that minimize the necessity of works after coming to Christ. The Apostle Paul says works cannot bring us to Christ. James says after we come to Christ, works are imperative. Okay, those first two make sense. But how does verse 21 work grammatically? Pastor, it says he's justified by works. And What I think, what I believe James is doing is found in the preposition by, verse 21, justified by works. Uh, In the Greek, it's ek. And if you go to BDAG, Baumgartner, Dankin, it's it's kind of the gold standard of of Greek New Testament uh, dictionary lexicon. If you look at that word, that preposition by or ek, uh, BDAG, it gives nine categories of by or ek. It gives six subcategories of those nine. So in other words, this by, this uh, preposition by, has 15 different nuances that it can mean. And so with Paul, when he says justified by faith, he is clearly using that preposition in an instrumental way. We are justified through the instrument of faith. We are justified by faith. That's how, that's the process. But the preposition by can also mean accompanied with, accompanied by. In other words, what James is saying is that 
Our father, when our father was justified, and it was accompanied with works. Works came with that justification when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. That is a very legitimate way of understanding that preposition and that phrase, justified by works. And as a result, his faith was working with his works, and as a result, faith was matured in Genesis 22 when Abraham willingly gave up his son on the altar. And then in verse 23, James says, and scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here, James is acknowledging that, that faith alone is counted as righteousness. This verse from Genesis 15 is quoted by Paul to prove justification by faith alone. And James says, I know that as well. I, I believe that as well. But that saving faith, that justifying faith, by faith alone, it has a fulfillment. It goes somewhere. It does something. And when Abraham offered his, his son Isaac on the altar, Scripture was fulfilled. Justifying faith was proven genuine and valid and authentic. And when he did that, Abraham was called the friend of God. And then in verse 24, James summarizes what he's trying to say. You see that a man is justified, accompanied by works, and not by faith alone. In other words, uh, there's, there's faith that, that comes with justification, and there are works, and they have to come together. Again, this preposition by can be very vague, can be very kind of loosey in general, and I believe this is how James is using that preposition, and this is what he is saying for his purpose of the letter. We get to verse 25, and then he goes from Abraham, the father of faith, the model, the hero of Israel, and then he goes to Rahab, the prostitute, the lowest of the low. And he's saying, yes, Abraham, even the greatest, the greatest hero of our faith, he needed to prove it. He didn't get a pass. It, it had to show fruit. And even Rahab, the lowest of the low, a prostitute, her faith needed to be proven as well. Her faith needed to show fruit. And in the same way, verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified with works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? See, from the great patriarch Abraham to the lowly prostitute Rahab, faith always works. It doesn't matter who you are. Big churches need to have members whose faith bear real spiritual fruit, and small churches must have members who bear real spiritual fruit. You can't go to a big church and think, well, I don't, have any, I don't need to do anything. It's all provided for me. Or you can't go from a, a big church to a small church and say, I don't need to do anything here, especially here. No, everybody has to do it. The rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the gifted, the ungifted, Jew, Gentile, male or female, black or white, every genuine believe, believer must possess a faith that works, a faith that bears fruit. And lastly, we go to verse 26, and 
James has already said a faith without works is useless, it's dead, it's demonic. In verse 26, now James compares a faith without works to a dead body. He compares a, a faith without works to a rotting corpse. Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A, a dead body has the faith, has the face of a living person, the same nose, the same eyes. The same arms and legs of a living person, but what a, bod what a dead body can't do is move and act and serve and talk and pray and hope and love and worship and sacrifice. A dead body can can't do that. A dead body looks the same on the outside. You could have a viewing, and it's, he's all the person's all put on makeup, and he looks fine. He 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 looks like he's sleeping in a way, but he can't move a finger because he's dead. Can your faith move? Can your faith get up? Can your faith breathe? I read a, I read a news story last week of a from the uh, 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 it happened in England, an English publication, and a a bride had recently married, and her husband had bought her a two carat diamond ring. I don't know if you know what a two carat two carat is like huge. It's a massive big ring. And so wherever she went, she was wearing this, this two-carat ring, and, and everybody would look at it, and she would get a lot of attention, and people oohed and fawned and awed, and, and she just loved the attention. And she was so proud of her giant sparkling diamond ring and until she was at a dinner party, and then one of the ladies whose diamond was smaller than hers asked to see it. And, the, and so the lady took the, the new bride's ring she gave it to her husband, who was a jeweler, and he took the diamond, he examined it, he, he gave it back to the woman, and, and he gave her, I quote, this is the story says, a look of confusion mixed with pity. And it was then she realized something was wrong, so she took it to a jeweler the next day who confirmed her worst suspicion. You may be able to fool people about your faith in this lifetime, but I am telling you there is going to come a day when you're going to have to show your faith to the divine jeweler. When you show him that ring, he's going to say to you, why? Why? You could have had a real diamond. You could have had a diamond that I purchased with all that I had, my only son, a diamond bought by the blood of my only begotten son. You could have had it. But you chose a faith. Nobody tricked you. Nobody tricked you. You chose to wear that thing. Why? See, a faith that Christ died to give you will not fail to produce works and it will not fail to take you to heaven. So make sure, make sure you're wearing that diamond.